Well, as Ben said, we are looking at Psalm 119 as we are spending our summer in the Psalms together here. And uh, I know some of you probably have been dreading this one, hoping that David's not going to preach through all 176 verses. Well, guess what? Go for it. Ben says, go for it. Should we take a vote? (laughs) We're not going to look at all 176 verses of these, obviously, today, because I, like you, do want to have lunch. Um, But I do encourage you to read all 176 verses of Psalm 119. Um, Not only is it the fact that this is the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the Bible, not only do those two facts make this psalm unique, uh, but also, it, the way it's organized, it's organized into 22 different sections or stanzas. And you can look in your Bible, and I invite you to please turn in your Bibles and look at Psalm 119, and you'll see each of these sections begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's a little bit easier to learn than the English one, right? Because there are a few, few letters. And uh, there are no vowels in the Hebrew alphabet. That's one of the reasons why it's shorter. So you have Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Dalet, Hey. Uh, you see all of these. So if you ever want to learn Hebrew, you can start right here in Psalm 119. You can at least learn the Hebrew alphabet right there. And each verse in each section begins with that letter. So in verses 1 through 8, in the Hebrew, each verse begins with Aleph. In, verse, uh, in section 2, each verse, verses 9 through 16, begins with the letter Beth. So in that way, it is a very extended acrostic. And so in a way, if you think about it, by organizing this psalm, which all 176 verses are about God's Word. The longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible. And and, and, and the, the way it's alphabetized and organized that way, it's as if the psalmist is telling us that it is here to literally instruct us in the ABCs of God's Word. The message of Psalm 119 is that the Bible is adequate and sufficient for every area of life from A to Z. And a life that is lived on God's Word is a life that is as ordered and reliable as the alphabet. So there's a message for us even in just how this psalm is written and organized. And and while the psalm deals with many aspects of God's Word, there are really two major themes that unfold, and that's what we're going to look at today why we should value the Word of God, and how we should value the Word of God. So let's look at that first one. Why should we value God's Word? What makes God's Word so valuable and important that we have this long of a passage of Scripture about nothing but Scripture? So it gives us two broad answers to this question. The first is that we should value God's Word because of what it is. Because of what God's Word is. Is And the psalmist gives us eight names. Throughout this chapter, there are eight different terms he uses for God's Word. Let's look at those quickly. The first one we see in verse 1, and that is the word Torah. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law, the Torah of the Lord. That's the Hebrew word there. Now this is the primary name that's used for the, the Hebrew Scriptures throughout the Old Testament and especially here in Psalm 119. Now, usually your English translation will translate the word Torah, as it does here, the word law. But don't get hung up on that word law. Because as as Christians, we think, you know, we're influenced by Paul. We hear the word law, and we think it's pharisaical. We think it's all about legalism, that it's about 
trying to earn your salvation. But the Torah was given out of grace, not legalism. God freely chose Abraham and his descendants to be his holy and special people, his nation of priests to the rest of the world. They did nothing to earn that. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. They could not rescue themselves. God did for them what they could not do on their own. From beginning to end, God's relationship with Israel was all about grace. And so after God freed them, He gave His people instructions on how to live as a holy and free people. How to live in ways that would glorify Him. How to live in ways that would free them to experience shalom, real peace, true happiness and fulfillment. And the word Torah itself comes from a Hebrew word that means to direct, to point the way. The idea is that the Torah is a way of life. It's not a legal system that you follow to earn salvation. And we see that reflected here in verse 1 when it says, Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the Torah of the Lord. We see it in places like Psalm 1, where it tells you not to walk in the way or stand in the way of the sinner and sit in the seat in the mocker, but to follow in the way of the Lord. It's Psalm 23, when it talks about that the Lord, our shepherd, guides us down the right paths for His name's sake. It is by God's Word that our shepherd leads us down those right paths. As important as living the Torah is to the psalmist, it is the Lord Himself, not the Word of God, but God Himself that the psalmist is seeking. As we see, if you look in verse 57, when he says, You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey Your words. So Torah, don't think of Torah and law in a negative term when you read it here in Psalm 119. Now the other seven terms used for the Bible in this psalm really are actually synonyms for Torah. They're each designed to help us to understand a different aspect of God's Word. And the next one we see is the word statutes in verse 2. Statutes. Not statues, but statutes. They always confused me when I was a kid. Blessed are they who keep His statutes and seek Him with all their heart. Now, this word statute, I think a better translation is testimony. That's what the Hebrew word there means. It's where we get the word testament. So when it says statutes here, it's referring to the physical, literal tablets, the testimony of the covenant that, God, that Moses brought down from God on Mount Sinai and stuck in the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. That's what this is. So when it says, blessed are they who keep His statutes, it's talking about keeping the covenant, that covenant relationship between God and His people. For the Jews, of course, this meant obeying the Mosaic Law that we find in, in you know, specifically Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But for Christians, what does it mean to keep God's testimony, God's covenant? It means that we live as citizens of God's kingdom that we follow in the way of Jesus, that we live as a people who are forgiven and freed by the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how we keep His statutes. A third term, there are two different words, but it's usually the same Hebrew word, and that's the word ways or paths. Ways or paths. We see this in several places in verse 3. 
They do nothing wrong, for they walk in His ways. Again in verse 32, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. And then verse 35, direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Now these Hebrew words are closely associated with Torah. Remember, Torah means pointing the way, to direct someone. So it's pointing us, directing us down the right way, the right paths. And it evokes a sense of conduct that we are to act on the Lord's direction. Look back at verse 1. Verse 1 tells us how we can be blameless in our ways. We do it by walking according to the Torah. Look at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? Ask us a great question and it gives us the answer. By living according to your word. And then we see in verse 29 a similar question. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me through your law. How can we keep our ways from being deceitful? Verse 30 tells us, I have chosen the way of truth. We choose and we walk the way of truth and it will keep our ways from being deceitful. Ways, path, that's a great metaphor. We think of life as a journey. You know, we, we even talk about you know, walking the Christian walk or walk your talk. We think about this. And so God's Word is a way, it is a path in which we can walk. The fourth term is the word precepts. That's another sort of churchy word. I don't know how many of you ever use the word precepts in your day-to-day conversation. Not me. Well, look at verse 4. You have laid down your precepts, they are to be fully obeyed. Now that word can also be translated command, but different than the word command, this word precept has a very specific uh, lean to it. Uh, there's a specific command, a specific order that's been given. The, the root word here means someone has come to visit or to inspect for a purpose. And it also has the sense of entrusting something for safekeeping with somebody. Imagine it this way. A general or a king has come to visit his troops. He's inspecting them. And then he entrusts them with a particular mission. That is a precept. And God's precepts are His specific instructions to us as His army, as His ambassadors. We think of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is a precept from Christ. He has entrusted to us this mission of going into all the world and proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything He has commanded. That is a precept from Christ, He's entrusted that specific instruction to us and He intends for us to follow it. The fifth term is the word decrees. We see that one in verse 5. Notice how many of these are just right here in these first few verses. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Now this word comes from a Hebrew root word that means to carve, to inscribe, as if drawing a boundary. It literally means that that which is engraved, it's etched in stone, just like the Ten Commandments were. It's valid for all time. It's recognized as the law of the land, and it must be obeyed by all of its citizens. God's Word draws up boundaries for our lives. And those boundaries are there to protect us, to keep us from walking off a cliff. Just as the shepherd, remember in Psalm 23, guides and guards his flock with his rod and staff, so our good shepherd guides and guards us by his word. 
The sixth term is in verse 6, and it's another word that can be translated commands. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. Now, this word's pretty straightforward. It's, it is what you think it is. It's the word command. God's commands. What are God's commands? What, what is a command? A command is something that's meant to be obeyed, isn't it? It's an expression of somebody's will. If I give my daughter a command, that's what I want her to do. And I expect her to do it. You know, clean your room. Clean your plate. Put it in the dishwasher. It's a command. I expect it to be obeyed. So God's commands are instructions to us from the one who has the right to make those commands and who has the power to enforce those commands. And we who fear the Lord should follow those commands. The seventh term in verse 7 is the word judgment. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws or judgments. So sometimes the NIV translates this word laws, but this isn't the same word as Torah. Okay, so when you see law in verse 7, it's not Torah, it's mishpat. Mishpat is the Hebrew word here. And it's a legal term. It's a term that talks about a judgment, something that's been arbitrated as in a, a legal case. And when you think about it, arbitration or judgment involves what? It involves at least two parties. So this word mishpat carries with it a relational aspect. There's a relationship here. There's at least two people at play. And so the idea here in verse 7 is that when we praise God with a righteous heart, we will learn His judgments, His legal decisions concerning us, concerning life, concerning how in the end God will ultimately deal with wickedness. God's judgments are righteous. And the last term that we're going to look at is the word promises in verse 8. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. I'm sorry, not in verse 8, verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then look at verse 38. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Fulfill your promise. Now, the same Hebrew word that's translated as promise is also translated as word in the NIV. And, and maybe in your translation as well. The idea, so when in verse 11 it says, I've hidden your word in my heart, that's the same Hebrew word as in verse 38. Fulfill your promise to your servant. The idea is that God's word is like a promise. It's like a pledge. It's something that we can count on. What God says is true. God is always true to His word. He follows through. And so the reason that we can hide God's Word in our heart, in verse 11, the reason we can hide God's Word on our heart and it can keep us from sinning is because we are counteracting Satan's lies, the lies of temptation, with the truth of God's Word. You know, temptations always promise what they can't deliver, right? But God always delivers what He promises. That's how His Word in our heart can keep us from sin. Now, a mere glance as we've done at these words is sufficient enough to realize that God's Word is more precious than what any one word can convey. Amen? One word is not enough. The Bible is God Himself speaking to us. It is God's testimony of Himself. It is His law for our lives. It is God giving us guidance as we walk through a dark and dangerous world. But even these eight words are not enough. 
And so throughout this psalm, the psalmist also draws some very vivid imagery. He paints these metaphorical pictures for us. He says that God's Word is like purifying water. It's a treasure of great riches, far greater than silver and gold. It's sweeter than honey from the comb. It's a lamp to light our ways. It's a heritage to cherish and pass on to our children. Now how valuable are those things? How valuable are riches? How sweet is honey? How valuable is a heritage to pass on to your, treasure, to your children? How important is purifying clean water? What would life be without, like without these things? But they pale in comparison to the value of God's Word. That's why we should value God's Word, because of what it is. But secondly, the psalmist tells us we should value God's Word because of what it does. What it does, look back at verses 1 and 2, we see, first of all, God's Word brings happiness. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep His statutes and seek Him with all their hearts. We've talked about this before. That Hebrew word blessed means happy, fulfilled, satisfied. The psalmist is making the point that our happiness and fulfillment in life is directly tied to how we value the Word of God. Now, tragically, the devil has convinced so many people today that the opposite of that is true. They see God's commands as oppressive, as prudish. But we know the opposite is the case. The key to happy, fulfilled lives is to live in God's Word and to have God's Word live in us. It brings happiness. Secondly, it produces cleansing. Look at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? by living according to your word. And then again, verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God is used by the Spirit of God to regenerate the hearts of the people of God. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5. He, he uses this great analogy. He's, he's using marriage to talk about the relationship that Jesus has with the church. And here in Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by what? The washing with water through the Word. And to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Now, if you're like me, you look at your life and you think, well, I am certainly not without wrinkle. And I'm getting more of those or blemish, or stain. I'm not perfect. I've got plenty of things in my life to confess and to be ashamed of. But the Bible here says that when we are presented to Jesus Christ, we are without blemish. We are holy and we are blameless. And what is it that washes us, that cleanses us, to make us blameless in the sight of a holy God? It's the Word of God. Through the Bible, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ cleanses our hearts and our minds and our lives. By His Word, the Holy Spirit shows us what pleases God and what doesn't please God. He calls us away from sin and into a purity of life that the world cannot and will not ever understand apart from Jesus. It's noteworthy in verse 9 that the, apostle, uh, that the psalmist specifically relates the cleansing power of the Word of God to young men. Those of us who were young men, we understand that. He, he knows the tendency of young men to be rash and to not think things through sometimes. 
and to fall into unclean living. And he wanted them to understand that devotion to the Word of God could preserve them from following destructive paths. We look at the, at the crime in our country today. We look at the number of young men who turn to gangs and turn to drugs. We look at how many young people are, are just not following through on their commitments. How much do they need to be in the Word of God? The Word of God can keep their ways pure and keep them on right paths. Thirdly, God's Word gives us liberty. Flip over to verse 45. The psalmist says, I walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Freedom. Now, from the free love movement of the 60s, what we call the sexual revolution, to the modern day moral relativism that says, you do you, and you be true to yourself, and you follow whatever your heart desires, sin has always promised freedom. Sin has always said that it's about freedom. That, it, that sin is the freedom to do what you want, what makes you happy, and to forget about these old stodgy religious rules and requirements. You just, you just be free to do what works for you. You live out your truth. That's what we hear today. But the exact opposite of that is true. Sin leads only to bondage, never to freedom. Peter says this in 2 Peter 2.19, they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And we live in a culture filled with people who are enslaved to depravity and sin and they think that they're free. But it is God's true Word that brings real and lasting freedom. As Jesus said in John chapter 8, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free. The Bible is not a set of rules. It's a vehicle for God's life-giving presence. The Bible is not about restriction. The Bible is about true freedom. Look at verse 32. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Now, I love this passage. I love this verse right here. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. We think of commands as restrictive, as boundaries, and we're kind of bound into this narrow path, and we've got to just walk lockstep and these, you know, put your foot here and put your foot there. But the picture here is of somebody who's given this wide path, and they can run freely on it without fear of tripping, without fear of falling off the edge. Now, you know, like me, if you've ever been hiking up in the Smokies, you know, some of those trails up there, like, like if you're hiking up to Mount Leconte, there are places where literally you're holding on to a little metal, uh, you know, core cable in the side of the mountain and, and just, you know, right there, you're just, you're just going to step right off to hundreds of feet of a drop. You wouldn't want to run on that path, would you? Or how many of those paths are going up or down and there's just tree roots everywhere? And if you run on that, what's going to happen? You're going to fall and hurt something. But this picture is of a path that you don't have to worry about tripping. You don't have to worry about falling off. God's commands are a wide path. They're a path that sets you free to enjoy the journey, to run with abandon. 
God's commands set our hearts free from the bondage of sin. And I think about those who are enslaved by sexual desires. I think about those who are confused with gender dysphoria. I think about those who are addicted or those who are just wrapped up in the in vogue ideologies of our day. Contrary to what the world says about these things, it is by living God's Word, what He says is right and wrong, how He created us and the world to work, that's what liberates. That's what gives us the space to be who God created us to be. God's Word sets us free. Number four, God's Word provides direction. Look at verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path, as has been so wonderfully illustrated. We live in a dark and perplexing world that offers us a lot of different paths. But if we carelessly choose the wrong path, we set ourselves up for misery and ruin. The Word of God provides us the clarity, the direction that we need. It's like a light illuminating a, a, a dark path through the forest. You know, when, when we take the youth on the Gatlinburg mission trip, one of the favorite things we've done in years past is this night hike up to Laurel Falls. And it's a lot of fun. It's, it's in the dark. Now, it's a paved trail, so there are only a few places where you might plunge 100 feet. I'm just kidding. It's a paved trail. It's not too rough. It's not too hard. But what we'll do is we'll give a few people some flashlights, somebody up ahead, somebody in the middle, somebody at the end, and we ask all the other kids to turn off their lights, and you walk that trail at night. And it's a, it's a beautiful, amazing experience. But you are, you are looking at that light. Whoever's got that light ahead of you, you're watching. You're following that light. It illuminates the darkness so that you see where you go. That's what the Word of God does for us. And finally, in verse 130, we see that it produces understanding. The unfolding of your words gives light. So there's that image again. The unfolding of your words gives light it gives understanding to the simple. Now, I know about you, but I need things explained to me plain and simple sometimes. Right? Amen? So it's great to know that the Word of God gives understanding to the simple. You don't have to be sophisticated. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be seminary trained. God's Word can give light to all of us. It can give understanding to anybody. And now these ideas of light and understanding and walking in the way. I mean, again, I just love that image of hiking on a trail with a flashlight. That, that brings in the idea of Torah. That brings in the idea of, of precepts. That brings in the idea of ways and paths. It brings in the idea of God's Word as illuminating light, as, God, as, as bringing understanding. All of those are tied together in that powerful image of God's Word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As God's Word shines its light on our path, it also enlightens our minds so we can discern the right way to go and the things God would have us to do. Now, the only way that we can experience these benefits of the Word of God, these things that make God's Word so valuable, this intrinsic value, the only way we can know happiness and cleansing and liberty and direction and understanding, the only way that we can know and value the Bible is more precious than silver and sweeter than honey is to use it. Those will benefit you not at all if all your Bible does is sit up on a shelf, lay on a nightstand, or sit in the back of your car window. You have to open it. You have to use it. And thankfully, the psalm not only teaches us why we should value the Word of God, but secondly, how we should value the Word of God. 
And I want us to end by looking at some very practical things that we can do to discover this great value of God's Word for our lives. The first thing we have to do is study it. Read and study the Bible diligently. I mean, why did God even give us the Bible? He gave us the Bible to point us to Himself. We don't study the Bible so that we can know more about the kings of Israel and Judah. We don't study the Bible so that we can wax eloquent about the Jewish ritual purifications of priests, as I know you want to do. We don't read the Bible so we can win at Bible trivia. We don't even read the Bible to give us inspirational quotes to get us through our day or to give us words of wisdom so we can make the right business or parenting decisions, though we can certainly get those things from God's Word. No, the greatest reason that we should read and study the Bible is to seek God. It's to know God. It's to have a relationship with God. Look at verse 2. Blessed are they who keep His statutes and seek Him with all their heart. Look at verse 57. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. You remember Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their wrong motives and approach to Scripture. Jesus said to them, you study the Scriptures diligently. That's commendable, right? Shouldn't we study the Scriptures diligently? Yes, we should study the Scriptures diligently. In fact, the Bereans were complimented by Paul for studying the Scriptures diligently. But look what Jesus goes on to say. They study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. We read God's Word. We study God's Word. Not in some way to that maybe if I can just find the right formula and know how to live a perfect life. No, we read and study God's Word because they point us to Jesus. We see and know Him through these pages. We don't just look into God's Word, but through God's Word to seek and see His face. So whenever you study the Bible, whenever you're reading the Bible, ask yourself some simple questions. Things like, what is this passage teaching me about God? And about myself? And about the world? Is there a promise here that I can claim? Is there an example here that I should follow? Is there a command in here for me to obey? Is there a sin that I need to confess and turn from? When you read and study the Bible, do it not just for information, but for transformation. We study it. Secondly, we obey it. Because what good is it to study God's Word if to, to better know the Lord if we're not going to obey the Lord? If we're not going to obey what we learn in God's Word. Remember when Jesus said that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free? He said it's because we are His disciples and we are holding to His commands. The, the Word of God will only set you free if you're living it, if you're obeying it. Psalm 119 refers to obeying God's Word in several ways. In verses 1 and 3, it talks about walking in the law of the Lord and in His ways. In verse 2, which we've read, but look also over at verse 129. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. We are to keep, we are to obey His testimonies and statutes. Look at verses 9 and 10. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. So we are to evaluate our ways to make sure that we're not straying, to make sure that we are following in the ways of the Lord. 
I like to use Psalm 139, 23, and 24 as a prayer when I read and study the Bible. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We are to approach God's Word with, with a desire for God to speak to us. To reveal things, it's like looking in a mirror, James says. When you look in a mirror, it's to see what's wrong. I know some of us might just look in the mirror just to see what's awesome. That's not me. I'll look in the mirror to see what's wrong. You know, I have some, you know, spinach stuck between my teeth. You know, is my hair, you know, out of place? You know, do I have my tie on straight? You know, whatever. We look in the mirror to see what we need to fix. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking correcting and training in righteousness. So as you read and study the Bible, do so with the heart and mind open to God's Spirit, allowing Him to teach you what is true, to rebuke you of your sins, to correct your wrong thinking, and to train you in righteous living. The next thing we must do with God's Word is store it. We've already read verse 11. To hide God's Word, to store God's Word in our hearts and our minds is to treasure it with all the confidence that it will fortify us against sin. One preacher summarized this verse this way, the best book in the best place for the best purpose. The Word of God in our hearts to keep us from sin. Now Paul builds on this in Ephesians 6. You know, Paul writes about putting on the whole armor of God. And let's look at that just very quickly. He says, put on the full armor of God. Now everything that Paul mentions in this verse, it's either... That piece of armor is the Word of God or it's applied by the Word of God? Think about this with me. Stand firm then with the belt of truth. It's the truth of God's Word that frees us up to run into battle. He says with the breastplate of righteousness in place, it is God's Word that guards and protects our heart. And it is only by God's Word that our hearts can be upright and righteous. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And where do we find the gospel of peace? In the Word of God. And the Bible says how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who proclaim that beautiful good news. He says we're to take up the shield of faith. Now how is it that our faith can quench the fiery darts of Satan? Because our faith is informed by the trustworthy and true Word of God so we can counter the doubts and the lies and the discouragements of Satan with faith that is backed up by the Word of God. The helmet of salvation we can know and have assurance of salvation. We can guard our minds against those doubts because of what God's Word says. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is what? It is the Word of God. And Hebrews tells us that this sword is living and active. It's double-edged. Not only can it help us to deflect the, the lies of Satan, but it can pierce into our soul and reveal to us the sin, the cancer of sin that needs to be removed in our hearts. We store it. That's not some passive thing to store God's Word. It's an active thing. It's warfare. And finally, or next to finally, we declare it. D, verse 13. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. Now, you might remember uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And uh, they encountered the risen Christ. And after he explained the Scriptures to them... They said, were not our hearts burning within us while He talked to us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? 
See, when, when we hide God's Word in our heart, it sets our hearts on fire. It makes it burn within us in such a way that we can't keep it to ourselves. In fact, Jeremiah says that if he tried to not proclaim God's Word, he said that in my heart it becomes like a burning fire, shut up in my bones, I am weary of holding it in, indeed I cannot endure it. And in the early days of the church, despite all the persecution, the apostles said we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. When we study, when we memorize, when we are living out God's Word, we're going to be hungry. We're going to have a fire to share its good news of salvation with those who are lost. We're going to long for opportunities to talk with other people about what we're learning from God's Word. And listen, you don't have to stand in a pulpit to declare God's Word. When you come to Sunday school class or a small group Bible study and you've got that opportunity to discuss and to share with other Christians what God is speaking into your life, when you find somebody who's lost and the Holy Spirit equips you and every believer in here can be equipped and is equipped by the Holy Spirit to share their testimony and the plan of salvation with someone who is lost. And I can't tell you how many times in witnessing to someone and defending the faith or even just counseling somebody who needed help, I can't tell you how many times the Holy Spirit brings to my mind a passage of Scripture and I can quote it verbatim and explain it to somebody right there without looking at anything. That's the Holy Spirit. But guess what? The Holy Spirit can't bring to your mind something you've not read. And He won't bring to your heart something you've not stored in it. And finally, we should rejoice over God's Word. Look at verses 14 through 16. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Now, we cannot miss the connection in these three verses. Verse 14, the rejoicing in verse 14 and the delighting in verse 16 are directly tied to the meditating on verse 15. When you meditate, that means when you think about, when you dwell on God's Word, when you allow it to infect your heart and your mind, when you get to the point where it's not just you looking into God's Word, but God's Word is looking into you, you will rejoice and delight in it. You will fall in love with it. I rejoice in my wife. I delight in her. Because I know her. And the more I know her, the more I love her. And the same is true when it comes to Christ. And His Word, the more we're in it, the more we know it and and through it we know Jesus, the more we will rejoice and delight in Him. And our love for Him will grow deeper. Spending time in God's Word will not be a duty, but a delight. How much do you value God's Word? Do you rejoice in it? Do you delight in its teachings and in its story? Are you eager to spend time in the Word of God. As believers in Christ, I want to challenge us today to earnestly pray for God to give us a renewed hunger and thirst for His Word. I want to encourage you to commit yourself to God, to make a plan for spending time every day reading in God's Word, studying it, meditating on it, even memorizing Scripture. And, and we've got some great resources to help you. The Year of the Bible resources. You know, last year we spent a whole year focusing on God's Word and reading through God's Word. Those are still available on the church website. Great resources. Or you can go to thebibleproject.com. Great resources to help you spend time every day in the Word of God. 
I want to encourage you to commit an extra hour every Sunday morning by coming and being a part of a Sunday school class where you can study and apply God's Word with fellow believers. But don't just stop at applying God's Word to your life. Apply your life to God's Word. Apply your life to reading it, knowing it, living it, and sharing it with others. Maybe this morning God is leading you and your family to commit to this church, to join us. And I'll tell you, we're a church who loves the Word of God. We're a church who preaches and teaches the Word of God. We're a church who, though we're not perfect at it, we come together to help each other to strive to live by the Word of God. And if this is where God would have you to worship, to serve, to study His Word, I invite you this morning to come and unite with us. But finally this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you've never discovered the Christ that the Scripture points to. You've not encountered the greatest message of the Bible, and that is that no matter what you've done, God loves you. And He loves you so much, He sent His Son to die for you. And Jesus hung on that cross and took your sin and your shame upon Himself that you might become the righteousness of God. And if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, then I invite you to come so that you can lose your small story into the larger story of God and His great love for you and all people. Whatever the Lord is speaking to your heart, As we pray in just a moment, I invite you to stand and come and obey. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You so much for Your great love for us. You loved us enough to reveal Yourself to us through the person of Jesus Christ and through Your written Word. That we might know You. That we might see our need for You. That we might discover the true and abundant life You desire for each and every one of us. So Father, I pray that Your Spirit would convict and move in people's hearts today. And that we would step out and be obedient, not only in this time, but throughout every day of this week, that we would step out in faith and be obedient to Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray.